G has recently raised a complaint against the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland for homophobic, racist and transphobic abuse. In this episode, they reflect on a journey of resisting a white institution and how this intersects with their families living under an authoritarian government back in Singapore. She was a survivor. In that sense, my grandmother is so queer that she defies the normativity. Urban. Urban Echoes. Urban. Urban Echoes. If one would... So if I wrote my Chinese name... Uh, not my Chinese name, my grandmother's Chinese name. So um, there are three words here. Uh, so this is actually yi, but if translated somehow or at least in the translation of a name you know which made it into the official records um, it became j instead of uh, y so actually this word is would be pronounced as yi but in the Latin alphabet, mm. they somehow translated it into G. So I, I just took that on as well. G just means child. Uh, when I was born... I was given the name Egan by my parents um, because they knew a Catholic priest who somehow became a friend and he was a Irish missionary priest who immigrated to Singapore in the, I think the 70s and his name was Liam Egan um, and I never really asked my parents uh, in detail, you know, so what was your friendship with them or with him such that you named your child after this guy so in old Irish it means fire and I've stuck with that name you know for the past 24 years or so and it wasn't only until um, two months ago that I've decided that actually I I want to um, shed this name in this way and I adopted the name G for myself I guess for a number of reasons the first one was because a year and a half ago I made the decision to share openly with my parents about my queerness um, and my gender identity but another reason why I decided to change my name was also given to the fact that my grandmother, um, who is a really central figure to my life, she passed away last year. In fact, just a month after I so-called came out to my parents. And um, she was 92 years old. 
I grew up with her. She raised me, you know, from and when I was born, and we were very, very close. And she's had such a, a significant impact on my life. And her name was Xiao Mokji. And therefore, I decided to adopt the last word in her name for myself, mainly to honor her legacy and her life through. Through my own life, um, and that's that's how Chi came about two months ago. She was eleven years old when she escaped from Guangdong, which is a province in southern China. The Japanese invaded um, in nineteen thirty-seven, and yeah, she had to flee the country, and so initially she she took a boat. And fled Guangdong to Hong Kong,、um, and then the Japanese invaded Hong Kong, <laughs> and <laughs> then from Hong Kong she had to take a much longer、uh, boat journey, about a couple of months, all the way to Singapore, and that's where she ended up. And yeah, some years later, the Japanese invaded Singapore. She experienced a lot of trauma and、uh, struggle in her life, and. Yeah, she was really an amazing, an amazing woman. Singapore, and I moved、um, to Glasgow to do my university education, and then to Berlin. I am sitting here in London, and I'm currently staying in the house of my two close friends who I met in Glasgow. I'm sitting in on a carpet with quite warm and soft lighting with a new friend who I just met. I've travelled a long way, and I've been travelling. For a long time, as well, through many different places. I feel like, at any other point in time in the past, I would be giving a very very different interview.、Um, I mainly work in a performance medium, but I also incorporate other disciplines to my work. I collaborate very often with my partner.、Uh, we work across installation, text. Video sculpture, and as for my own practice, I have been looking quite closely at themes and ideas surrounding、uh, coloniality and postcoloniality, and that's been cultivated through my time as somebody who grew up in Singapore, living in the UK for the past four years. My work has been very much looking at the sea recently, and how the sea. Is a place of、um, refuge for me, but I also recognize it to be a very hostile environment. For instance, my grandmother took a boat across the sea to find safety. But yet, I also know that in today's context, so many, so many of, I suppose, I would call her contemporaries. In today's era, the refugees who are 
escaping warfare and and destruction have been consumed by the sea. Um, I'm looking at yeah how the sea was the medium which facilitated the expansion of colonial empires, how especially the British and the Dutch um, managed to make their way across the world to Southeast Asia to yeah to take and to exploit, to colonize. Currently, I'm very interested in cultivating a practice of speaking back to things as opposed to just speaking about them. And I think in this spirit, it has really influenced my attitude towards life and how I work as a person. I think it's always very important for me to know where I am in the world, in my work, um, what I'm doing, you know, why I'm here. Yeah, to, to play an active role in the shaping of my own life and the world around me. start with how I um, moved to Glasgow in September 2015, so four years ago now, uh, to start on this program. And it was really in Glasgow where I started to become exposed, or much more exposed at least, in a very open and um, comfortable way, where you know, the people around me, where society is uh, discussing and engaging very actively and um, freely regarding queerness and uh, issues surrounding sexual identity. And that was something which was really new for me in many ways because, um, you know, of course, these days we have the internet, so nothing is really secret. Of course, I knew about my sexual identity and I knew about, you know, it could just take a few clicks on the internet for me to yeah, find out about other people and the accounts of other people who are queer. But it was different, you know, in a lived way for me to experience firsthand, like, all of these things. So, I was, yeah, in Glasgow. And then in March of 2018, last year, I went to Berlin to study on an exchange program at a dance school there. And that was also like um, a period in my life which was I consider to be really really transformative and really really significant for me for, for myself uh, in, in Berlin I mean it's a place where yeah issues of queerness you know and not just queerness but everything from yeah I mean some people would say that actually Germany as a whole and Berlin included is still a very racist uh, place um, and I would not disagree, you know, I think there's still quite a lot to be picked up on in Germany, but regarding um, the queer communities, I think there's really a lot happening there, and that was really a place where I started to feel really, like, far more comfortable than I've ever been in my whole life, actually, as a queer person. I think very importantly as well, I started to be able to develop a language you know, to articulate my queerness as well, because um, there was so much of this discourse happening, and I met so many queer people, and it was just all around me. At that point in time, my brother was 
he did his university education in Singapore, but he also did an exchange program in England uh, during that same period of time. So my parents felt like it would be a good idea to visit us uh, in, in Europe, you know, for a short while. So they came to Berlin and they visited me for, I think, about four days. Uh, and that was the time when I decided to share with them about my queerness and my my identity in this way. Yeah, my parents are Singaporean as well as Catholic. So on the Singaporean front, as I mentioned, homosexuality is, you know, it continues to be criminalized mm. for gay men, uh, specifically gay intercourse. Like, it's quite a strange law and it's actually a law which is a carry-on or hangover from the British colonial era. So women are fine. Like, <laughs> but the post-colonial government um, felt like it was uh, something convenient to to keep around as one of the laws. So, you know, since anyone can remember, the rhetoric of the government has been that, well, we need to uh, preserve our Asian values as a society, as Singapore. And we cannot let these liberal Western ideas come into play and eat away at our Asian values. So this in itself, you know, it's a different, it's a whole other story where I have a lot to say about it because homosexuality is not, you know, in fact, colonialism and the arrival of Christianity into, you know, all these other parts of the world where the European powers colonized, that was actually the cause of um, homophobia and like the eradication of very, a lot of gender diversity in the world. Yeah, so on that level, as Singaporean people, they have been, you know, fed this mentality that literally gay people are criminals in Singapore or uh, very susceptible to being arrested or, um, yeah, your lifestyle, so-called, or your decisions would lead to, would equate to criminal activity. And no parent wants that, you know, every parent wants the safety of their child. And as a result of this law, yeah, queer people have far reduced rights than others in Singapore, than like straight people in Singapore, I would say. For instance, as, as males, um, one would have to do a national service in Singapore. Um, and if one declares that one is gay, either you would not need to serve national service, or you would be kind of given a, a desk job. And you wouldn't like a, face charges. Yeah. You you would you would not because actually like it's just the gay intercourse which is uh. criminal. Yeah. And from what I've heard as well, you know, you would not be allowed to it will be much more difficult for you to secure public housing and all of these things. It's and a job if you will want to uh, find a job in the public service, in the civil sector, then it's also very difficult because this is now on your record and everyone will be able to know that you know you are and it's a liability mm. so given this whole culture which has been around for decades in Singapore it's not a surprise I think for me that any parent is fearful you know if their child identifies as a queer person or a gay person and then you know on this next level or this next layer my parents are Catholic yeah they were not born Catholic <laughs> My dad was actually born into a Taoist family. And this in itself is very interesting. My mom was also not Catholic. She was kind of irreligious. 
Um, but my, my dad went to a missionary school for his high school education. And he met, um, yeah, nice people there, you know, who inspired him, I would say. And that kind of led him to consider, yeah, conversion to Catholicism. And eventually that's what he did. Um, and that's how, when my brother and I, I have one older brother, when my brother and I were born, we were immediately born into this Catholic context. You know, and raised, yeah, I was going to Mass every uh, Sunday and, yeah. All that stuff. So on these two main layers, or rather, with regard to these two factors, um, yeah, my parents were just really, really, really scared and disappointed. And when I told them, you know, about my queer identity, my mother started to cry, and um, she was visibly upset. And I asked her, you know, you know, why are you upset? Are you okay? And she said, yeah, I've been praying for you for such a long while. And I asked her, oh, okay, what what have you been praying uh, praying for? And her response was, you know, Egan, it's just every parent's wish for their child to be normal. Then that led me to ask her further, you know, oh, what do you mean by normal? And does this now make me abnormal in your eyes? And yeah, it was this difficult conversation that we had. My par- my, my father was just kind of like paralyzed by the side. He just really didn't know what to do. And yeah, the conversation kind of turned to how my mother said that she was she's really hurt. And I didn't understand why she was hurt. You know, for me, I would, as I said to her, for me, this is me, you know, having to um, exercise a lot of courage, actually, to come forward to you about this aspect of my identity. You know, it's something that you know didn't just occur to me like this a couple of months ago. It's something that I've been having to deal with for, you know, like at least 10 years of my life, if not more. No, definitely more. <laughs> yeah. So um, I said, I don't understand, you know, why you're hurt because this is me coming to you out of respect and out of love for you as my parents that I wish to share this important aspect of my identity with you at, at this point in my life, you know, where I feel like we can meet each other as adults. She wasn't able to take this in at the moment, I feel, and um, she was, yeah, visibly upset, and, yeah, it it was just a conversation that was not happening, and eventually I had to walk away from the conversation because, yeah, she eventually said some, yeah, really hurtful things which I probably won't repeat here. A month after this, uh, my grandmother passed away. And um, I received the news and I, yeah, of course, I immediately booked a flight back to Singapore, you know, and um, the flight, I think, was in two days. Within that two days, I stayed over with a friend of mine. Um, And when I got to their flat, I, you know, had food with them and 
I was sharing with them about my grandmother's life, you know, and um, my relationship with her. And yeah, my friend told me, wow, that's really a lot. Did your grandmother know that you were a queer person? Or, or did I have any conversations with my grandmother about my queerness in the same way that I had with my parents, you know? And I said, um, no, I didn't explicitly, you know, have such a conversation with my grandmother. But I think she always knew because we were so, so close, you know. And my friend said this very interesting thing at that point in response to me, which I didn't quite grasp in the moment, but which I really, it really stuck in my mind for like months, for the whole year, in fact, which came after. It, uh, they said, from the sounds of it, your grandmother was probably already a queer person herself. I didn't really respond, you know, and it got me thinking in the in a long period of time after that. And I think it's only quite recently where, I, where I've come to a better understanding of what my friend said. And I think it's to do with this notion of queerness and how majority of society, at least in the discourse which is happening around queerness right now, you know, is kind of very much um, focused in a pretty narrow way on the dimension of sexual identity. But I've come to realise for myself that queerness actually has a much more expanded meaning beyond just the sexual dimension. And when I look at it in this way, I think I now understand what my friend meant, that my grandmother, as a war refugee escaping the odds, or rather, what, how do I say, defying the odds, coming to Singapore at 12 years old, you know, it was crazy. Like, she lived in this really cramped quarters in Chinatown when she first got here with her grand-aunt, and uh, eventually she, yeah, started to work, and and she met her husband, who was eventually very abusive, and had to run away, and she was a survivor. In that sense, my grandmother is so queer that she defies the normativity. She's just outside, you know, of things. And the way her life story has, has played out, I think it's she's led such an extraordinary life. And, you know, regardless of her sexual identity, I would agree now with my friend that she was actually a very queer person. And Mm, this idea is, has grown to become so precious to me in many ways that now, you know, in this recent period when I've, to the extent where I've adopted her name, um, it's brought me a lot of comfort and a lot of strength as well, which has kept me going and um, has allowed me to like sustain this relationship which I have with her. Um, yeah even though she's uh, now past
The program which I studied on was the Contemporary Performance Practice Program. Um, it's an undergraduate degree at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland. And the course, I guess, in principle, it encourages autobiographical performance making. So making performance from the material drawn from personal stories and our lives, which has been something which I have adopted very much into my own practice, you know. And the course sort of, yeah, tries to pride itself on the diversity of its student body and how people of all races, gender identities, sexual orientation, all of these um, protected char- characteristics, as they, as they would say in the UK, all these everyone is welcome you know and that's all fine and well but the staff team of this program is all white and all cisgendered in addition to that out of the eight permanent staff members six of them are graduates of this program so the constitution of the staff team is really contrary to that of the student body, which is genuinely pretty diverse. If I think about it in terms of like gender identity, that you know I have trans friends on the course, um, there are quite a number of queer people on the course, racial diversity is still a problem, definitely. And the person who's been, who's been running this program, um, her name is Deborah Richardson Webb. She founded the program about 20 years ago, and she continues to be the head of the program. And as I mentioned, the six out of eight people who came back, you know, who graduated from the program and came back to teach on the course were and have confessed themselves that they were her favorite students. So there is like a real problem in this course. So there's been so many cases of uh, abuse. You know, as I said, there were 10 students in total who wrote statements So for myself, in 2017, I was in my second year of study and my course holds these weekly meetings. And at one of these meetings, there was a tutor at the time who, again, was a graduate of the program, this 
cis white men, uh, English men, who somehow found it necessary to greet everyone in a different language every week. So on one Monday, it would be in Russian, you know, and then on one Monday, it would be in French. And then on one Monday, he decided to greet the cohort in Cantonese. But no one knew that this was Cantonese because he stood up and he said, So sun, everyone. And no one responded. The whole room was silent because no one knew what he was saying and no one knew how to respond, you know. And then he tried again, So sun, everyone. And again, there was silence. And I have a peer, a, a classmate, who at the time of, of this incident was the only other Cantonese speaker in the entire room, aside from myself. So this tutor looks towards this friend of mine. This friend of mine looks at me from across the room and there's this awkward silence and the friend, my friend, tells me, oh, so sana. And I look to this tutor and I say, oh, so sana. And he says, oh yeah, so san. And I said, oh, uh, it's actually so san. And so we have this kind of back and forth, a little bit of like, I'm trying to actually tell him how to pronounce good morning in Cantonese, so san, but he doesn't catch the, the phrase or the pronunciation right. And, you know, that's fine. Eventually I say, okay, you know, that's totally fine. Like, just like carry on. And he made his announcement and then the program meeting ended. And then after the meeting, I was leaving the room and I passed the table where he's seated. And I catch him looking at me and I kind of turn towards him and he asks me, Egan, do you have something to say to me? And I said, um, no. <laughs> and we somehow get back into this exchange of me trying to get him to pronounce Zhou-san rightly for about the next good five minutes or so. And he still doesn't really catch it. Okay, maybe he improved a little bit, but it wasn't, you know, there. And I tell him, you know, that's totally fine, that Cantonese has uh, seven tones, you know, and like, you know, each tone, blah, 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 blah. And I said, um... You know, that's fine, Peter, but thank you very much for trying. Because I was going for a class and I had to leave. So this line is important, what I said. It's yeah. fine, it's fine, Peter, but thank you very much for trying. This other tutor who's seated beside him, Gary, he catches um, our conversation and he turns towards me and he says, yeah, that's what we think when you guys speak English. And this friend of mine, the Cantonese-speaking friend, was literally standing right behind me. And I was so shocked. I said, excuse me? And at that point, him and Peter were laughing. And reacting to the shock of this remark, I found myself also kind of laughing as well. And Deborah, you know, the whole staff team sits at the same table. So Deborah was there, the head of the program. 
And she kind of catches on to what is happening as well. And she looks at me and she asks me, Oh, uh, Egan, how do you say good morning again in Cantonese? And I look at her and I say, It's Zohusan. And she says, Oh, we, we just can't get it right. Oh, we are so flawed, Egan. We are, we're just so flawed. And I leave this room shaking with shock and anger. And I tell some of my friends about this. And these friends, you know, they are really they were really quick to support me and to kind of figure out what was going on as with any other normal person would, as, as any normal other normal person would. And they said, you know, this is not acceptable. That was definitely a racist attack. You know, with my friends reflecting this back to me, I could more clearly see that, yeah, actually this was a racist attack. And I decided to go and meet um, Gary, yeah, in the afternoon to speak about this, to bring this up. So in the afternoon, I went to their staff office and they were right there in the staff office. And I said, um, would you have a, a moment? I would like to speak with the both of you about something which happened this morning. And Deborah said, oh, I actually have to go for a meeting, but if it won't take long, then uh, yeah, sure, we can have a chat, definitely. What is it regarding? And I say, it's regarding an incident which happened between Gary and I earlier at the program meeting. And they said, okay. And they get up and they walk to um, a music practice room, which is really small and really claustrophobic, I remember. And they ask me, okay, so what is it? And I tell them, you know, okay, so do you remember at the program meeting earlier today, Peter said this thing about the Cantonese good morning. And then after the meeting, Gary, you made this remark. I actually see that as something that could be construed as racist. And I felt really uncomfortable after that. And I'm coming here to speak with you to ask you what your take on that is. You know, what do you have to say about that? Because I think that was unacceptable. After I said this, I could feel that air being sucked out of this room. Debra's face completely changing. And she turned and looked at me and she said, Egan, it was just a joke. It was just a joke. What are you trying to do here? I've been watching you and you've been really cheeky actually during your time here and what are you trying to insinuate and i was completely stunned just as stunned if not even more stunned than i was earlier in the morning when this actual comment was flung at me and i was like wow this is the program leader of this program which is supposed to be you know welcoming to all kinds of people and she said eventually Look, why don't you just go and throw more eggshells up in front of us so that it inhibits our ability to interact with you even further? And I was like, what are you talking about? You know, I felt so taken aback by it. And at this point, Gary speaks up and he says, Look, uh, Egan, if I had known that you would be so affected or so hurt by what I said, I would not have said it. So not an apology. And at this point, I'm just completely stunned. And I tell Deborah that, you know, I'm, I'm really shocked because you have seen the development of my work 
in the time that I've been here and you know the politics of my practice, you know, why would I why would I want to stir up trouble in this way if I don't feel like I have an actual stake in this or if that I genuinely feel like I was I was hurt. But she at this point already has become really emotional and she starts to cry. And she says, I have seen in the past twenty years, you know, students come through this program of different races and we have got along just fine. I don't see I don't know what you're trying to insinuate here. What are you trying to do? And this question constantly is coming towards me. What are you trying to do? What are you trying to do here? And then eventually I say, you know what? Initially, I came here to speak with you about this incident and to see whether you were on the same page as I was and to see what you wanted to say about how I felt because I felt really uncomfortable and and genuinely hurt by what Gary said. I am trying to find out why you feel so attacked and hurt. And then she looks at me and she says, I think the conversation has ended here. I leave this room with near certainty that I was going to go and call people to see if they would be able to lend me money to buy a plane ticket back to Singapore. Because I felt like this was such an attack and I felt so yeah alone at that point. We kind of fast forward now to January of this year, 2019, yeah. where um, it had been a term since I returned from Berlin from my exchange program. I was in my final year by that time of doing my course. But also because I had prior knowledge, you know, I had friends and I speak with them and they share. we share freely amongst ourselves as students that, you know, this happened to me and that happened to me. So I already knew that there were so many of these other cases happening all around me. It didn't take long for me, you know, to speak with a couple of friends and then eventually a group of us came together to write supporting statements to support the official complaint that we filed. So we filed that in February. We came together, we wrote our statements, amounting to 103 pages. And this was during the time when we were, you know, I was doing my coursework, I was actually making my degree work at the time. So you can imagine how busy we are. It's not like we have a lot of free time, you know. Eventually, it wasn't until the middle of March this year where they sent us a letter saying that your complaint has been upheld. Deborah has breached the dignity at work and study policy on at least six specific occasions. So we were so happy that all the work that we did was you know, not in vain. But we read on and we see that in the letter that was written to us, it says, we note that there has been no recommended action proposed by the complainants. And we were so confused because having already exercised so much labour to even raise this issue, now you want us to do further work for you and to tell you what to do with regards to this person and to the, to the abuse that we have suffered. So we immediately write back to them and say, okay, this is our list of demands. Eventually, they say we will consider. A week later, the director of the school writes to us individually. This very official looking letter, two pages of it, he wrote to me. Thank you 
for your contribution to this complaint. I was particularly pleased to note that you have a genuine concern and interest for the well-being of this program. You know, quoting me, quoting my statement, and I am sure that Professor Richardson Webb and her staff team are in absolute agreement with your sentiments and that we should all work towards the preservation of this program, which is not only unique to our conservatoire, but to our culture and our country. So all this very weird rhetoric, in addition to twisting my words from my statement. So at this point, all of us are so tired. We've exerted so much of our effort. We took this as a small victory in itself, and we kind of wanted to take a small break you know, at this point. So eventually, it comes to June, and still we had not heard from anyone. And I receive an email from the finance department because I was about to graduate in July, the month after, saying that they were telling me that I had not paid my school fees yet in full. And they were telling me that if you do not pay your tuition fees in full, you will not be able to uh, graduate, to receive your degree certificate. So as a, as a matter of uh, resistance, I've not, I've not paid my school fees yet. Um, and I, I have, technically I've graduated in July, but it was all a charade. I received this tube, you know, but there was nothing in this tube. So it was truly a performance. And I still don't have my degree certificate. The moment we, we filed this complaint, you know, we got a response saying, thank you, we've received your complaint. Immediately, there was a kind of notice to us. Please note that this entire process has to be strictly confidential. You are not to discuss this with any of your peers. So this rhetoric has been around for day, from day one, all the way until, yeah, until now, effectively. So that has really influenced, you know, how we moved. For myself, I was, I think, quite aware that this was a silencing tactic employed by the institution mm. so that we wouldn't be able to reach out for help and, yeah, really hold the institution accountable through the means of making this public. The moment I say, I'm going to make this public via an open letter, all of a sudden, people are responding to me on time. People are responding to my demands. You know, so it's very clear that this silencing or this silence that the institution has tried to enforce upon us has been a priority. Uh, my main worry is actually my parents. They were the ones who were really, really freaked out by this. That, you know, they are concerned for me, you know, that I would not be able to find a job in the future and I, I don't really want to portray my parents in a way that where you know they might seem fearful or not courageous or anything like this you know but what I mean mm. is that um, you know it's just a, a circumstantial thing where you know my, my dad was born in 2019 now so 1958 he was born and my mom I think in 1960 Three. So Singapore gained independence from the British in 1965. So they were born in this and raised in this era where Singapore was just coming to terms with its independence and 
embarking on this process of nation building and in the first national elections in Singapore, the political party that came to power and took hold of government was is the People's Action Party or PAP for short and until today actually um, they are still the party in power so after 54 years um, there's been no other political party which has taken a hold of the government it's very interesting for me right now even as I'm speaking to notice that I am becoming hesitant about whether I should speak about the Singaporean government because there's been a very, very long history of... Surveillance? Surveillance and censorship and uh, oppression in terms of, yeah, let's say like if there was a political opponent, you know, from an opposition party. In the past, you know, there have been many of such figures who have challenged the government, you know, on legitimate grounds where they they run for election, you know, is a so-called democratic state. So there are general elections in Singapore. And many of these uh, opposition leaders and opposition figures have been thrown into jail. Um, and many are still in jail yeah. without trial. Um, and the same thing with artists and activists who, um, depending on the nature of their work, um, there are many artists who have made work of a political nature, and that could mean anything on a broad spectrum of issues, you know, whether they are um, critiquing society or an aspect of the government's way of doing things in, or administer, administrating in Singapore, you know, all the way to things like race or religion, sexuality, which are all very touchy topics in Singapore. Very fragile ecosystem in this way of racial and religious harmony and homosexuality, for instance, is still criminalized in Singapore. Should any artist or activist yeah, challenge or sort of speak up about these things, um, it's very common for the government to shut that down in varying ways, uh, in various ways. So it could range from anything from yeah, censorship you know, in the media to civil lawsuits against these people where they would be made bankrupt or be fined. And there are, you know, even as we are doing this right now, there are many political exiles uh, Singaporean exiles who are living in other countries because they have been, yeah, sort of blacklisted by the state as, um, yeah, undesirables. I think regarding whether my parents acknowledge or not I mean definitely they acknowledge you know that you know when I share with them that okay this happened to me that happened to me but their response to it is broadly speaking to say that you know this is what happens you just have to take this as an experience 
my, my mother literally said this, why don't you close this chapter and move on to the next chapter? So it, it is quite difficult in terms of, um, yeah, getting my parents to see um, from my perspective. Because I genuinely feel like I, I do understand where they're coming from. Like I said, I recognize that they, their response, you know, all these things which they're saying to me is they're all coming from a place of fear and concern for my safety and my well-being. And when I see it through that lens, I genuinely, of course, appreciate their concern. You know, and as I said, they were cultivated in a particular way. They grew up in this political climate where everything was so controlled. For them, coming up against an institution, especially a white institution, as they say, this is, we're living in a white man's world, this is the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, there's no point to fight. So you came here for um, this education, some unpleasant things happened, but ultimately what matters is that you get the degree certificate. My parents even said actually that, you know, Egan, this is a white man's world. You just have to accept it. We'll try to support you as best as you can. You know, let's try to find a way to pay these fees and get your certificate so that you don't need to deal with this anymore. Maybe if you want to deal with this or to take a um, complaint after you receive your, deg your degree certificate, then you can consider that. But please, please, as a priority, make sure that you get this degree certificate first. You know, and in Singapore, what we call the paper chase is a real thing. You know, whether you so-called move to, you know, your social progression, however you want to call it, it is very much dependent on paper, you know. And yeah, I try to explain to my parents that, you know, in the artistic world, that's a bit different. You know, if you were perhaps like a lawyer or a doctor, then of course, you know, you need to have your degree certificate before you get a job. But in the art world, you know, I have so many friends who don't have this paper, but yet are such successful artists in their own way. But for my parents, it's just like a different, a very difficult concept to grasp. It is definitely a result of, um, you know, colonial violence and it ties in, I think, very neatly with how this institution has perpetrated this kind of violence upon myself and my peers. Um, I think the main thing that I, has helped me, if there's anything in that, is that their reactions and their responses have helped me to see their fear and from that, it leads me to think about why they are so afraid. Um, and as I say, it comes back to this thing of being afraid of. As an individual, you know, being afraid of something as large as an institution. Um, and it's really helped me to, I guess, put into perspective the fundamental differences between my parents and myself where they were raised in a different era from from me you know survival was very much a thing you know singapore was going through this quite politically turbulent and economically very unstable period of time and eventually because of this 
totalitarian government or this government that has been in power for 54 years, Singapore has achieved this level of economic stability, which as a result of that has allowed people from my generation to perhaps like have a further privilege relative to that of my parents' generation, you know, for instance, to be able to, you know, for me to come to Glasgow, you know, to study in Berlin. These are all really, really significant privileges, which perhaps many people of my parents' generation would not have easily had access to, you know. So all of these things are like really interlinked. That is because of their work, where they had to prioritize, you know, earning money, you know, really keep their head down, not to rock the boat. Yeah, keep your mouth shut, basically. And take care of yourself so that you will be able to live a so-called stable life. And in many ways, I'm reaping the benefits of that as their child. But with this being on this other side where I have this privilege of having this opportunity to study in in these places where I'm exposed to different cultures and um, learning about my you know, how different political systems work, about self-organization, about uh, collectivity, you know, resistance. A lot of my political ideals have been shaped by the time that I've been in Glasgow and in Berlin, you know. So my parents' reaction makes me think about how all of their fears and my, you can call it, you know, determination, you can call it stubbornness, my drive, how all of these things are interlinked, actually, in very, very intricate ways. And that's helped me to, maybe process is quite a good word, if you mention process, where it's helped me to process a lot of the initial frustration that I felt when I was met with the reaction, you know, of like, you know, just don't fight anymore. Of course, I felt like, why... No, like, this is a political principle that I don't pay these people, that I have to fight through. Why are you not getting this? So initially I felt really frustrated, but as I thought a bit further about, you know, why are my parents so afraid, it helped me to see, yeah, all this interconnectivity and and it's helped me to process it in a way that, yeah, I don't feel frustrated about my parents anymore. People who have come out, so to speak, as gay or queer live as second-class citizens in Singapore and and they don't want me as their child to live that way. Okay, I understand from their perspective. But I think it's a little bit of a different thing here regarding my queerness and how they have been responding to it so far. But for many of my friends, you know, and people who who, who know me, it doesn't take a lot for them to see that actually I'm a queer person and for my parents to have reacted with such shock you know like you know oh I've been praying for you for so long okay even this line maybe I've been praying for you for so long maybe my mother knew you know she's my mother come on so she probably knew from a very very early stage and then she's been praying for me apparently yeah and that my queerness would go away um, one might say that, okay, yeah, they were shocked, they were, you know, caught unawares. A part of me still feels like they were not able to protect me from them, if you know what I mean, from themselves. 
from their internalized uh, homophobia and you know it's definitely something that I will remember for the rest of my life and because it was such a significant thing and but okay maybe in a similar way it just needs a bit more time you know I think as I said they are very new to understanding a lot of matters regarding how you know perceptions of homosexuality of like gender identity of resistance how all of these things are shifting um, in this era which we live in now I can only hope 